Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pop Culture Sociologist, the show where I analyze books, movies, and TV shows for your enjoyment. I'm Marina Berlin. I've been a media and culture critic since 2011. And in this episode, I'll tell you about matriarchies, how and why we write them, why they're important, why I wish more people would write them. And of course, I'll tell you about my favorite current fictional matriarchy, the TV show Motherland Fort Salem. Before we begin, let's talk about what a matriarchy is in the context of fiction. The easy answer is, it's the opposite of a patriarchy. Traditionally, the three different power structures we can have in fictional societies, if power is distributed based on gender, is patriarchy, where men are at the head of every major axis of power, such as government, economics, religion, art, and so on. We can have a matriarchy, where women occupy those posts. And we can have an egalitarian society, where power is shared equally. To be clear, I don't mean to imply that men and women are the only two genders. It's just that people who identify as neither men nor women are a relatively small percentage of the population, and the division I'm talking about in terms of power structures is the broad strokes of what's been popular in fiction for the last few hundred years, at least. In both a patriarchy and a matriarchy, the implication is that people who don't identify as either men or women will face barriers in acquiring structural power. Although, of course, in fiction, this is handled many different ways in different stories. In an egalitarian society, there's a much greater chance that everyone, regardless of gender identity, will have the same access to privilege and power. So what I want to talk about today are matriarchies. Why? Because I think the default setting in science fiction and fantasy, genres that are not bound by realism in almost any way, is patriarchy. And I think that's kind of unfortunate and boring, and I wish it would change. I could do a separate episode on egalitarian societies, which are really the societies we mostly aspire to in real life and how they're portrayed in fiction. But in this episode, I'll focus specifically on matriarchies and how they're written and why, and what the pitfalls of writing them are, in my opinion. Matriarchies are important because they show us an alternative vision of how society could be organized that flips the script of what most of us grew up experiencing, but also because they provide an escapist space in the same way that patriarchies or egalitarian societies do. Epic fantasy patriarchies offer a vision of a magical land in which patriarchal norms are often even more oppressive than they are or ever were in reality. But they're also fun adventures with magic and dragons. If we don't offer similar escapist stories featuring different systems, whether matriarchies or egalitarian, we're robbing huge sections of the population of that same escapism. The whole point of fiction is to explore things that we can't or don't want to explore in real life. And matriarchies are important as a tool for that exploration. They offer a particular fantasy that can be as dystopian or as empowering as any patriarchy. 
but unlike patriarchies, they are written extremely, extremely rarely. I think probably the most prominent sign of this is how often stories that do not feature matriarchies are called matriarchies just because they feature women in some prominent role in society. It's a bit like that famous study about how when men and women speak an equal amount of time in a conversation, the perception is that women are speaking significantly more than the men. A perfect example of this for me is Brandon Sanderson's epic fantasy book, The Way of Kings. The book is set on the front lines of a fictional war, where the entire military and everyone in charge of it is a man. But men are also not permitted to learn how to read, so they have to rely on women to read and write their orders, communicate with other forces, keep records, and so on. This gives women an enormous amount of power. But women are still entirely secondary to the military commanders who actually oversee the war. Given this setup, I've seen readers say that the book portrays a matriarchy, when it doesn't even portray an egalitarian society. In fact, the story is set in a patriarchy, where at almost every axis of power, men have the advantage. But because women have this unique skill and responsibility, the perception is often that they're the ones who are in charge. Anyway, what I'll be discussing are real matriarchies, where women have the advantage in most realms of social power, just like men do in our patriarchal reality. So, now that we've talked about definitions, let's talk about the different ways that matriarchies are written. Number one is the oppressive slash horrifying to the point where it cannot exist by the end of the story type of matriarchy. What I mean by this is that the matriarchy is portrayed not only as oppressive, but as so oppressive that by the end of the story, the heroes must stop living within its borders. Either they're going to destroy the matriarchy from the inside, or they're going to flee and live elsewhere. There's nothing wrong with this notion, of course, except for how commonly I see this with matriarchies, as opposed to how rarely I see it with patriarchies. I have to work really, really hard to think of an action-adventure story set in a patriarchy that has nothing to do with gender at its core that's ultimately about destroying patriarchy and reshaping it entirely, or fleeing it for a more egalitarian society. The percentage of science fiction and fantasy stories set in patriarchies where that trope happens is minuscule. But the percentage of stories set in matriarchies where this happens is quite high. Matriarchies, instead of being used as the same background noise that patriarchies get to be, are used only as a rhetorical tool to point out how terrible lack of equality is and how we must change the system. I find it problematic that this is mainly done with a social system that privileges people who are currently marginalized in our world, instead of with the system that's actually oppressive in real life. Patriarchy tends to become the accepted status quo when it's imported into fictional universes, as if it's the natural state of things. But matriarchies rarely get the same treatment. Let me give you two specific examples of what I mean. A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin is an epic fantasy set in a universe with dragons and magic. 
And yet the world is extremely unrealistically patriarchal in a way our world never was. Gender is addressed, the patriarchy is engaged with, in many ways it shapes the narrative, but it's not something that the story seeks to fundamentally change or flee entirely. In fact, if you're interested in hearing more about that, episode three of this podcast is about Leanna Stark and goes into detail about how exactly the patriarchy is engaged with in those books. But the bottom line is, the story basically tells us that no matter how much effort is expended, patriarchy is the natural state of this world. It will never change and can't change and can only be made slightly more humane with better leaders, more order, less chaos, less violence, etc. Patriarchy, even though it's completely artificial to this world, is treated as something that can only be accepted and managed, not replaced. Now let's talk about Cameron Hurley's God's War series, which I think is chock full of amazing ideas, and even when it fails to accomplish what it's trying to do, it does so in really interesting ways. The books are set in a matriarchy. Women hold almost all positions of power, men are not safe walking around on the streets alone. For various plot reasons, there are almost no men above the age of 18 and below the age of 40 who participate in civil society. There's so much more that happens in these books, with magicians and insect medicine and all kinds of social persecution, just a lot of things. But let's talk about this specific aspect. Even though in this world there's racism, poverty, refugees, people dying in an endless war, by the end of the third book in the series, the matriarchy is what is overthrown in order for the world to become more egalitarian. The ruling class of women cedes control back to men in order to share power more equally. It's not that that isn't a valid narrative choice, but I'm just bringing you these two examples to show how common it is for the patriarchy to be accepted as natural and unavoidable, and for a matriarchy to be considered so oppressive that it can't be born within the confines of one story, which in this case spans a trilogy. But again, I could bring up many examples of this, including the Star Trek episode Angel One, which is amazing considering how rarely matriarchies even get written. The second way to write a matriarchy is to turn it into a joke. Probably the best version of this I know is in the wonderful book In Other Lands by Sarah Reese Brennan, about a boy who discovers he's destined to go to a school for special magical children full of fairy tale creatures. Elliot, the protagonist, has two best friends at the school, Luke, a warrior and part magical creature who Elliot later falls in love with, and Serene, an elf. Serene's full name is Serene Heart in the Chaos of Battle, and she comes from a race of matriarchal elves where all women are trained to be warriors, and men are trained to be nurturers and keep household, raise children, and so on. We see Serene's home in glimpses, from Serene's attitudes and stories, and from brief visits with her relatives. For example, Serene wants to make her best friend Luke her battle sister, but is told by the elves that can't happen because he's a boy. There's a hilarious moment when the school is attacked and the school librarian, 
a male elf, yells at the children to hide because they'll be safe here while the women save them. The world-building for Serene's matriarchal society is actually really detailed and interesting. It's acknowledged to be an oppressive system, but not to the degree that it must be completely reshaped by the end of the book. But just as something Serene has to live with because that's how her people are. But the reason this is permitted is because the entire premise is used as almost pure comedy. Every instance of the matriarchal elves is meant to be jarring, hilarious, or to feel off or wrong in some kind of amusing way. It's as if humor allows a matriarchy to be taken more seriously, in the same way that you can be far more transgressive in comedies traditionally than in dramas. Comedy makes an idea non-threatening. Again, this isn't just something that happens in one book. Sarah Reese Brennan's wonderful and truly hilarious version of this is just a convenient example. Finally, the third way matriarchies are usually written, if they're not portrayed as intolerably oppressive and are taken seriously, is by having them be off-screen. To see them only in glimpses, but never actually explore them in any sort of detail. A good example of this is a book series I deeply love, C.S. Picat's Captive Prince books. It's a fantasy trilogy where the different countries the heroes inhabit are based on ancient Greece and Renaissance France, meaning traditional patriarchal societies. The two main characters in the books are two princes from rival kingdoms, where only men are part of the line of succession. So the struggle is between brothers, uncles, fathers. But then at some point in the second book, the heroes encounter a different culture, Vasque, which is a matriarchy. It's comprised of various warrior women, the entire leadership structure is made up of women, and so on. By all accounts, this culture seems to be taken seriously and isn't portrayed as being any more oppressive than the patriarchies the heroes inhabit. In fact, the author herself has said that she wrote Vasque to be a collection of the coolest stuff she could think of, so it's portrayed in a fairly positive light. However, we meet this culture only briefly, in glimpses here and there, for strategic plot purposes. So the matriarchy is allowed to be portrayed seriously and as a system that's no more oppressive than the patriarchy, but then it must exist mostly off-screen and be off-limits for whatever reason for our protagonists. Now that we've covered the typical ways of writing matriarchies, I'd like to do one honorable mention of a book that I think does something really interesting and unique with the matriarchy, but that I think still falls into something I'd consider quote-unquote problematic. Let me explain. The book is called A Brother's Price by Wen Spencer. The story is set in a world where very few boys are ever born. Our hero is a boy with over a dozen sisters, and he knows that in order for his sisters to be able to have children one day, they will have to trade him to a different family and get a different boy back who will be their shared husband. Over the course of the story, the protagonist meets a princess who's run away from home. They fall in love, and he becomes the object of her affections. He travels to the capital, where the royal family resides, and a lot of the drama in the book centers on the fact that the princess's sisters 
all have to approve her choice of mate, because ultimately husbands are shared. I really like the world building in this book, and I think it avoids all the tropes I've described. The matriarchy is oppressive, but not so oppressive that it's unsustainable. It's obviously very central to the story and is on screen, and it's not treated like a joke. My only quibble is that in this story, where the overwhelming majority of the characters are women, and where women control every axis of power and commerce, still the main plotline hinges on an instance of sexual assault where a man was the perpetrator and a woman was the victim. Sexual violence against women at the hands of men is such a hallmark of patriarchal stories. For me personally, it seemed like a shame that a book that avoided all the usual tropes chose this plotline to put into such focus. But anyway, I still encourage you to read the book if you're interested in interesting portrayals of matriarchies. It does a lot of things that very few fictional works do. Speaking of things that are rarely done, let's talk about Motherland Fort Salem. Motherland Fort Salem is a TV show that began airing in the United States in March of 2020, so at the very beginning of a global pandemic. To my great shock, because I didn't know you were allowed to do this sort of thing on TV, it does with matriarchy all the things I always wanted to see and that are so rarely allowed to exist in stories. So what is the show about? Motherland Fort Salem is about a world in which witches are real, and instead of being burned during the Salem trials in the US, they struck a deal with their accusers. Witches have extraordinary abilities, which they can harness for all sorts of things. Basically, witches have made a deal with the US military that they will spend their lives serving the military interests of the US and essentially only use their powers to help the government. As a result, all witches are bound by military service and their abilities are harnessed specifically to create weapons in order to fight and so on. Witches, you are called to greatness. All of you will serve as soldiers of the United States Army. Fort Salem is a witch's place. All the characters on the show identify as either a man or a woman, so again, those are the groups I will discuss, though as we've mentioned earlier, it's baked into both matriarchies and patriarchies that anyone who doesn't fall neatly into the gender binary faces extra challenges. So for various plot reasons, women witches have much greater powers, so they are the soldiers in this witch society while men fill various auxiliary functions. I'm going to talk about the show's first season, as the second one is currently airing. In season one, the focus is on the military academy, where three young witches begin their training. I'm going to say upfront that I won't go into the aspects of the show that have to do with global politics, or how witches in other countries are doing, or the historical aspects of how witches were integrated into U.S. history, and what role they played in historical events by empowering the U.S. military and government. I think the show is at its weakest when it comes to these points. It's kind of muddled and contradictory, 
And while I'm sure there are a lot of interesting things that could be said about those things, I'm going to focus on what I think the show does well, and that's the matriarchy worldbuilding. I should warn you about spoilers for the show's first season, but I will mostly discuss worldbuilding aspects, and will talk very little about the specific plot that the characters go through. But, in any case, this is your spoiler warning. I'm going to talk about a few aspects of worldbuilding that the show introduces. The first is romantic relationships and having children. The second is the military training the witches go through. And the third is how boys and men in this world are portrayed. So, to start with families. Witches generally don't believe in monogamous marriages. Because the interest of the witching establishment is that every witch becomes a soldier and spends her adult life being a soldier, having witches be in long-term relationships with men who are not on the front lines is a problem. But it's still imperative to have every witch who can give birth do so, because witches need to keep their numbers up, and witches also tend to die young at war. So these things can't be delayed too long. There are intricacies with the politics of who in which society serves as grunts and cannon fodder and who gets cushy officer jobs. But the bottom line is that monogamous marriage as we know it doesn't exist. Instead, witches are pressured from the time they enter the military academy, which means roughly from their late teens, to have children without the constraints of romance or marriage. Witches are introduced, over the course of their studies, to witch boys of a similar age, and are then encouraged to have sex with those boys as part of various celebrations and rituals. In fact, witches are free to have sex with multiple partners at once, and there's no shaming of anyone's preferences. On the one hand, this is all framed as a fun, voluntary holiday, since witches are teen girls who are ultimately delighted at the chance to spend some time messing around with boys instead of studying for their exams or training. But on the other hand, there's of course a more inconvenient side to this. For example, Rael, one of the main characters, begins dating another girl by the name of Scylla after they meet at the military academy. As they're dating, Rael is expected to participate in a ritual in which witches from her cohort spend a night in the woods with boys and are strongly encouraged to have sex with them. Rael finds a boy witch who's interested in other boys, and they spend the night commiserating together. But that only illuminates the forced heterosexuality of the witch matriarchy. Which society must have children, and so the kind of sex that produces children isn't optional. And if you're wondering, the kind of magic that witches command can't create children any other way. Witches are not only presented with opportunities to sleep with men, but are pressured into it. Whether Rael likes it or not, she still has to spend a night in that forest. But then, what happens when these children are born? Witches are, of course, designated for the front lines, so the children are raised by their fathers, or some other man assigned to raise them if the father isn't available. The children retain an attachment to the mother, of course, but women are busy serving in the military most of the time, so 
they're just not around as much. However, as I mentioned earlier, high-ranking officers, for example, are far more likely to have the time and leisure to raise their own children, because they're close to home most of the time. Now let's talk about the military aspects of this. So, as we mentioned, women who are witches have far greater powers that they can be trained to use as weapons, and when they turn of age, they're essentially called to service and have to enlist. At the academy, witches are divided into groups, essentially fighting cells. So, a trio of witches trains together, conducts missions together, is evaluated together. You could say this is just a dramatic device for the show to throw its three leads together, but in practice, what this means is that a witch's primary relationship at the military academy and beyond is with her two teammates who are responsible for her as she's responsible for them. They watch each other, help each other improve, and pay the price for each other's mistakes. It's a way for witch society to apply pressure on everyone to be normal, to behave properly, to not stray too far from the path. You're not just letting yourself down when you rebel, you're dooming your closest friends to pay the price as well. There are a lot of questions raised in the show about how witches have basically subjugated their magic to war and violence as the price for their survival, and how it's made other kinds of magic which have nothing to do with fighting, disappear or go underground. There are also fringe groups of rebel witches who live in communes or communities outside of mainstream witch society and raise their daughters not to enlist when called. Finally, there are witch-human pairings. For example, Rael's mother is a witch, but her father is an ordinary human man who was never part of witch society. Such pairings are discouraged, of course, because they run the risk of diluting the magic witches have, and that will in turn risk their usefulness to the military. Rael is allowed to grow up outside of the witch world, mostly with her human father, but still, when she comes of age, she has to enlist. Finally, if all these young witches are busy learning to become soldiers, what happens to their brothers? Well, the show shows us very few glimpses of boys at that age who are not yet fathers. It seems that, like the military academy for girls, boys go to a separate academy, so basically they too are pressured to enlist and can't just continue living in the outside world. At the academy for boys, they're essentially prepared for their future roles and lives as the girls are prepared for theirs. For boys, this means training them in courting girls, pleasing them, essentially doing whatever they have to so a girl will want to voluntarily have a child with them. They're also trained in making weapons, which they then gift to the girls as presents. Again, there's an element of coercion here, of course, since boys who are interested in other boys, for example, are still forced to be part of the system and try to get a girl pregnant. A small detail I'd like to mention that truly exemplifies the best of this kind of worldbuilding on the show is the terminology used for the head of the military academy for boys and for girls. The head of the academy for girls is simply the commander of the witch corps. She holds the rank of general. She oversees the entire witch military, including the academy and the action on the front lines. 
the head of the Academy for Boys is called the Witch Father. He is the highest authority boy witches can aspire to. Calling him a father automatically imbues his role with a note of caring, empathy, softness, whereas his counterpart is simply the commander of armies. She is the default setting. He is the special exception, created so that boys would have a place in this world. Again, I'm not going to tell you that Motherland Fort Salem is the best show ever made for TV. It has a lot of interesting parts and quite a few parts that are ridiculous. But this aspect of the world building in it is simply amazing. I didn't know you were allowed to write stories like that for TV, set in matriarchies with a cast made up almost entirely of women. If we look at the common tropes I listed earlier, this show avoids all of them. Yes, the witch matriarchy is oppressive and coercive in many ways, from the military service to pressure to have children, but it's not portrayed as fundamentally more oppressive than any given patriarchal structure, certainly compared to certain periods of history. It's not the matriarchy that's the problem in which society, it's the militarization and coercion which can be fought against, improved, without undoing the entire fabric of society. The matriarchy is also not a joke here, of course, but a very serious aspect of life. And, of course, the matriarchy is very much on screen and central to the story. Finally, sexual violence of any kind is not a central plot point or theme for any of the characters. Honestly, I was shocked when I watched this show and realized what it was doing. It's unprecedented on TV and I think pretty rare in any medium. I admit there's a personal angle here for me. This episode is the last one of the season where I'll have a structured thesis. The next one will be a Q&A where I'll answer your questions. So at this opportunity, I'll confess that as you may or may not know, I'm an SFF writer in my spare time, and the book that I'm almost done writing that I've been working on for a few years is set in a military matriarchy. The reason I chose this setting is because I was tired of the tropes I listed at the beginning, some of which appear, again, in works I really, really enjoy. So I decided to write my own version. It's nothing like Fort Salem's. It's much closer to traditional epic fantasy than Fort Salem's blending of fantasy and futuristic sci-fi. But I was absolutely delighted to see someone else doing the sort of thing I've really really missed seeing. Matriarchies, like patriarchies, deserve to be written a million different ways, in my opinion. They offer such an interesting window into character dynamics, tropes, power dynamics. They're such a void where detailed, fascinating matriarchies should be. There are so few of them, and they're so often used as just a metaphor or a joke or something really cool we can't get into right now because it's not relevant to the plot. Matriarchies are really hard to write. Doing them well means rewiring the entire social structure you're basing the story in. And once you've done that, it's rare for a writer to tell a story that doesn't relate directly to the matriarchy itself but is just an action-adventure story about unrelated questions, such as the militarization of magic on Fort Salem. 
So I'm glad this show is here to fill the void. If I ever manage to sell the book, I hope it manages to help that void get filled up too. And, dear listener, I hope you'll check out more matriarchies, demand more from them, or maybe even write one of your own. It would certainly make me very, very happy. Thank you for being with me through this season of Pop Culture Sociologist. I still can't believe I managed to put out six entire episodes this year in between a pandemic and everything else that's been going on. Like I said, the next episode will feature your questions and me just talking off script. After that, the podcast will go on hiatus until next year when I hope to return with new episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for talking to me on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere. It means the world to me to see people are enjoying the content I put out. As usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends. And of course, a huge thank you to those of you who support me on Patreon. If you want to talk to me about the episode, I'm on Twitter at Berlin underscore Marina or at Pop Sock Podcast. In addition to being a media critic, I'm also a published author and poet of science fiction and fantasy. So if you're interested in that, you can read about it on my website, marinaberlin.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me tell you my thoughts. I'm Marina Berlin, and I'll see you on the next episode of Pop Culture Sociologist.